to Make That Paper, the show where we talk about all the crazy jobs we do to make the cash we need to pursue our artistic dreams. And to settle the sexual harassment suit inevitably filed against you by comedy legend Mel Brooks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're talking about that copy editing craft, the perfection of punctuation, profession, and alternatively, the old hog-selling hustle. We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. And on this episode, we are talking to a prolific comedy writer, a hugely successful screenwriter, and an assistant professor at a prestigious university. He was one of the original writers on The Daily Show and has written for Late Night with Conan O'Brien. For which he won a freaking Emmy. That's right. And also, he wrote for the likes of Robin Williams, Stephen Colbert, Mike Tyson, William Shatner, and others. Yeah, so uh, we're pretty damn excited to welcome to the show the one, the only, Guy, Guy Nicolucci. Nicolucci. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and thanks for pronouncing my name right. That's, I uh, was going to say Guy. Is it, <laughs> is it Guy? Only my daughter uses that variation. Otherwise, you're fine. Does she really? She calls you Guy? On occasion. Is she French? Are you French? That side of the family is French-Canadian. I was going to say Nicolucci doesn't sound French. No, it's not. No, the French Canadian, they're, they're like the French, except they speak French like ducks would speak if ducks spoke French. Oh, my God. Do you speak French? I can speak a few sentences. I took it for years. Bonjour. I'll speak it like a French Canadian. Exactly like a duck. <laughs> That's amazing. Je parle un peut-être. That's amazing. Ouvre les fenêtres. I just want to read something really quick because I thought this was also great. This um, is her Instagram profile. This is my Instagram. <laughs> I'm going to read you my Instagram right now. No, I'm not reading Instagram. I'm reading his Huffington Post contributor bio because oh. I was like, wow. Guy Nicolucci is an Emmy-winning writer who has oh. written for Conan O'Brien, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The Emmys, The New York Post. That's right. Was it a page six job? We're going to find out. The New York Daily News. Entertainment Weekly, and back when they existed, Spy and National Lampoon. Sorry, I just had to go there, too, because, you know, we stalk you. We stalk you before you're on the show. Uh, it's called Google, I understand. Yeah, mm -hmm. right? We found it tonight, and it's very useful. <laughs> <laughs> so glad that the internet is coming to the Beaver household. I'm so glad to be done with Lyco search. <laughs> I'll go for the Bing myself. But... What happened to Jeeves? Oh. <laughs> it's a sad story. It is. I remember like Mike Ovitz in his later failing years bought Ask Jeeves or something. That was like. Yeah. And I mean, the first thing he did was get rid of Jeeves and turn it to just ask.com. Yeah. Oh, really? For and real? Then, yeah. And like, who are you going to ask? Yeah. Not Jeeves anymore. Just ask. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what happened to Ask Jeeves. Now I ask and Alexa a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Okay, okay, okay. Let's talk though for one second. About mm -hmm. uh, what? About Guy's <laughs> weirdest job ever for one of the greatest comedy writers, selling motorcycles. You can sell motorcycles? What's wrong with you? I, I could sell them, but <laughs> the, they were good motorcycles. Honda, which... Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. I learned Honda. Wait, those are crotch rockets. No, well, they do make crotch rockets. They make all kinds. But... Um, the, the no, they're, they're really they're fantastic motorcycles. So what I've been told, the people come in, they're they're going to buy one, and they're not going to buy one. There's very little I can do to screw that up. It's like a really solid name brand. I mean, yeah. and this was a million years ago, back when when Harley Davidson um, wasn't. Was, I think it was in its dark period, and everything they made was falling apart. Oh, yeah. So yeah, basically, but the, the thing, the, it, it was fine. I basically, they, they, they gave me some brochures and I learned to kind of talk about them and uh, basically, but it was like, kind of like going on a date. You learn to let the customer speak more than you and they would sell themselves. They'd come in, they knew what they wanted, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I always get to the but, is that... My job was to tack on as much as I could to sell it as high a price as possible. Right. Yeah. And can't you, is there a certain number that you're, even if you're stripped down to a base model, do you still have like a, a, a range that you can sell it at? Like you yeah. can get as much as 20,000. If you go over that, you're in trouble. No, I could, if, if, if it was, a, say, let's say the bike costs $50. I use small numbers. because Yeah, because that's what bikes cost. Yeah, yeah I'd buy exactly. one. 
But if I were to sell it for $50, I would get, let's say, 10%. I would get $5. But if I were to sell that $50 bike for $200, I would get 30 or 40% of everything over 50. <gasps> yes. Wow. So my incentive was to lie and to make it as expensive as possible, to add on as many extras, to sell, uh, well, A, to convince them that the price was, say, 200 and not 50 initially, and then I would maybe come down, in which case I would start at 300 and try to get them down to 200. And, and by the way, these numbers are all fictional. These are just... I, I, I am Matt. I've, I've owned a couple of bikes in my life, and while none of them have been Hondas, yeah. you know, I realize that um, that this is a fantasy we're talking about. Well, the, the, the numbers are fantasy. Jamie's about to say something. She's putting a yeah. her mouth. I just listen, listen. Jason Bieber crashed three uh, motorcycles. Oh, I think it's. A, I think it's one a, in Belize. Nobody should have been selling him motorcycles. Yeah, period. Well, he should have had a card that said, "Don't sell me a motorcycle." I have several corrections. Not to not to take his side, but the fact that one of the things I learned as a motorcycle salesman was that there are two kinds of motorcycle riders: those who have gone down and those who will go down. Yes. You are going to crash. Well, I, you know, yes. I've, I and I was told that, and you know. While for most people that hearing that would instill perhaps a healthy dose of fear or maybe not, maybe some people just believe they're invincible. I, um, no, I somehow got instilled with an unhealthy dose of fear and uh, would frequently, no one ever needed to know this, but I would be riding my motorcycle with my full face helmet on and just scream. <laughs> <laughs> That I would, like I would be riding along, just screaming <laughs> in sheer terror, knowing that <laughs> at any turn, probably the next one, I was going to eat the pavement yet again. That's and cool. and I did it a number of times. I I I had five motorcycle accidents, and um, never hit never hit anybody or anything. You caught on fire. I did catch on fire once. Oh. That wasn't. I mean, it, it was my a motorcycle. <laughs> just walking down the street just should not have tried to chew gum at Wait, the same time did you catch fire twice <laughs> no just the one time <laughs> is there a kickstand on the motorcycle is that what went through your leg when you were in belize on the motorcycle uh, yep yep so it, it yep so that happened it was in belize it was bolivia <laughs> bolivia even that's worse it was not the kickstand the roads it, are worse it was the foot peg and that was the second time the foot peg went through my leg. Wow. And you think he'd learn a lesson. The first time was on La Brea on the way to an improv show. Oh, well, so. Guys, okay. like, I never, I never, I never rode them. I just sold them. <laughs> I never rode them. And that's the thing. One of the conversations I will always have with customers would always come around to their accidents. Yeah. And you would be surprised how many of them were like waiting for the insurance settlement from their last motorcycle accident to buy. I'm not surprised by that at all. <laughs> Let me ask you, do you feel like you have a lot of blood on your hands? <laughs> I was a comedy writer. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Okay. So you were selling motorcycles in college. Were you um, already thinking of a writing career at that time? Or pursuing one? Sort of. Um, I was getting a degree in journalism um, because at that time I didn't know that you, could be paid, that I could be paid to write for TV. Mm -hmm. um, now, basically, I thought my options were as somebody who read too much and was basically lazy, I could either teach English or go into journalism. And so I was getting a journalism degree. I had no idea of TV, et cetera. And my goal was to not end up as a teacher. And as you know from the intro, I no. think. <laughs> but yeah, but no, I mean, I got the job because this is. I got the job because I read the classifieds and there said salesman, no experience needed. And Great. I showed up and I think I didn't look like a freak. Mm. Um, I look pretty much as I do now, just like 30 pounds lighter and uh, same glasses. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I could speak English and mm -hmm. you know, it was a family business run by a guy named Mark Swain, not Mark Twain, Mark Swain. And it was in Southern Maryland, Charles County. And it had started, I think, as a car dealership. And then he'd added motorcycles. 
and found that they were cheaper and more profitable than maintaining the, the license with the whatever car dealership or whatever. And so it was run very informally and very, I mean, I, I didn't realize until like the last week I was there that the owner had been having an affair with the woman who ran the financing department and that he had left his wife for her. So really informal. Yeah. Very, very informal. <laughs> yeah. Very, nothing was kept track of. It was, it was very sloppy. Hmm. And, you know, again. It but was did you always get paid on time? I did. I always got paid on time. God bless. But, you know, again, it was, this is, again, a family business. And as you know, I'm sure you've dealt with them that not directly there you go but <laughs> not that they'll hire anyone but like somebody walks in that they can say all right we'll try him out he's a salesman job he doesn't work kick him out in two weeks yeah i i got involved in a family business once i found the job on craigslist in their classifieds mm-hmm. when i was out here and um the job was that i it was a company run by an ex um MLB baseball player. I can't remember his name. I have it written down somewhere. Babe Ruth. And I wish. And this I wish. And this woman. And um, her. It was uh, her and he. They used to date or something, and they formed this business. But now she's married to this old professor who writes about aliens. DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. That was it. Mm -hmm. And if only. And so I, my interview was at their apartment, which also worked as an office. Oh. And I was like, uh, okay. And sometimes I would have to go there and work on their computer. I wasn't allowed to work on the computer at my house to do like fill in Excel sheets. I was like, okay. So I just sat in their home while they were having family battles, filling in oh. Excel sheets. Yeah. And I had to, then I would pack my car with all these, um, goods and I would run silent auctions for them at charity events. <laughs> at charity events where they were making huge profits. Oh yeah. And so I ran the silent auction and her sister was my partner and her sister was older. And then her sister started hitting me up for jobs. She's like, you have a lot of freelance jobs, right? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, how do I get in on that? And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, what if I give you a resume of things I could, I would be willing to do. And I was like, oh my God, like she was probably 20 years older than me, had a kid. She was like desperate. And I was like, I have to quit. Yeah. It was like, this is not a good environment. And then one day the husband loaded my car up with notebooks filled with his book that he had written about real aliens and UFOs that he had found in the United States. Listen, I think aliens exist somewhere. I'm not narcissistic enough to believe that we're the only living things in, in, you know, whatever. There could be multiple universes, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Listen, but I don't want his book that we're living among aliens and lizards that's written in like 75 college-ruled notebooks. And he's like, here, you should read my book. <laughs> okay. So it was Hank Aaron. Yes. <laughs> Hank Aaron. It was Hank Aaron. <laughs> God, what was his Got name? it. I got to find out. I got I haven't written down. Somewhere. He wasn't, clearly he was not a well-known ball player. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He just had access to goods. He could get like autographed balls from people uh, for free and then mark them up right. for the silent auction. Right. And the, I think the, isn't the, the, the secret of those charities auctions silent or otherwise is to get everybody liquored up? Yes. Bid on everything. They'll bid on anything. They'll bid on anything. It's for charity. Same trick you guys use at the motorcycles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I only made a flat rate. There was no draw. I didn't make yeah. any percentage. It sucked. So when you were selling, so you're so you're in college mm-hmm. and you're you're selling bikes. Now you listed this as the weirdest job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've ever had, and I'm curious, like in your experience as a motorcycle salesman, what's the moment where you go, "This is weird." <laughs> Like this just is this not. Is just not this doesn't right. make any sense. <laughs> I'm a journalist. Well, the, like, well, I was talking about the people who would come in with the insurance money, and there was this guy and um, who had uh, Frankenstein stitches across his neck that looked like they're holding Shut his up. Head Where they put it back on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and it was from a motorcycle accident, and he was. Oh there, my god. There to buy another. I don't know if I could do that job either. I'd probably be like one weekend and like, I'm out. I was, I was 19 or whatever. I had no conscience, you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
they get, they're so, going to they're gonna buy their heroin from somebody is what the dealer is always telling, you know, how, oh yeah, I should have sold <laughs> pot in college. Maybe I'd have gotten rich. Listen, I went to Michigan state. Nobody there got rich. They just chance. developed pot habits. Right. And the guys I've known who are pot dealers are just, they're like, A, there's people calling you at all hours of the night. Yes. And it just sounds like a sucky way to live. I mean, it's just. And, and only if you sleep. Yeah. Yeah. If I think sleeping. if I was going to be a pot dealer, I would have wanted been would have wanted to have been one of the the bike messenger pot dealers in oh, New York yeah. City because no. those guys were fit as hell. And I wanted to be Mel Gibson in Tequila Sunrise. Or that. Yeah. 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 Yes. If you're moving like tons and tons, mm -hmm. then uh, and and making like millions of dollars, that yeah. also works. So you were 19 in college. 19 would be freshman, maybe sophomore, but. Mm -hmm. How long did you last with the motorcycles? Well, I lasted the whole summer. I mean, it was... Uh, oh, one summer. One yeah, summer. you know, and it was enough. And then, and actually, I just remembered that I introduced my brother there, and he got the job the next summer, my younger brother. <laughs> it really is a family business. Yeah. And, it came full circle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he got a girlfriend out of it, too. He dated one of the women there, so he did better than I did. Well, that seems to have been going around. It was very informal. It was very <laughs> informal. Was she doing books also? Some, some office thing. I don't know what. Uh -huh. uh, I don't remember. But no, it was just this strange thing. Because like I can say, it's, it's family business, meaning there are people there that shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And mm -hmm. there was an old guy. I just remember his name was Charles Boggs. And he had to be in his... Was Wade Boggs the, the baseball player? Yeah. yeah. It was Wade Boggs. It was Wade Boggs. Those little, little wiry guys with the, one of those um, red baseball caps on that it's like too big for him. Mm -hmm. uh, he just kind of wandered around and I never knew what he did. And I, I asked sometime, you know, what does he do? And they go, well, we just keep him out of trouble. Hmm. That's funny. There's that's that's funny because we had somebody else on, um, Angela Quintana, and there was a kid similarly in appearance, uh, similar in appearance, who the same thing. The owner just kept him around to keep him out of trouble, and I just yeah. thought that's what family businesses do. Yeah. Yep, that's what they do. <laughs> they adopt and they provide charity for yeah offbeat. Sometimes that's the reason family businesses are started. Um, what are we going to do with Charlie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have family members we could say that about. Um, yeah. Better be careful. Better be careful. Okay. So let's move ahead. So this innocent guy who is selling motorcycles, who happened to be named Guy, graduates with a journalism degree and then becomes a copy editor. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is the weirdest breakdown that you... And you guys are both in the literary world. I'm not. So for me, it doesn't seem like such a crooked line. You know, it's like, okay, you've, you've, you've been studying writing. Yeah. Well, I definitely think copy editing is a very specific trade yeah. in the business. Yeah. I mean... You can go through four years of journalism school and never understand how to be a copy editor. Right. As I believe may have been the case for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't good at it, but I was better at it than being a reporter. Um, I mean, you wouldn't know this from my effusive outgoing personality, but I really hated calling up strangers who didn't want to talk to me and get them to talk about things they didn't want to talk about. And oh, actually, and I remember my first reporting story ever, the, uh, the, the School of Journalism ran a daily newspaper, a citywide newspaper, the Columbia Missourian, and I was on the courthouse beat. Uh, I was one of, you know, there's like 30 of us on each beat. We're all unpaid. And I'm in the elevator, and there are two bailiffs there in uniform, and they're talking, and one's telling the story about how um, he was, a visitor came to the jail, and the visitor was a member of this uh, clan, like um, this big inbred clan in town. It was a small town. And he goes, and he was visiting one of his cousins or brothers. And I go, because he was one of them, Pepperwood, whatever their names are, I ran his name. And sure enough, there was some paper on him. So I arrested him. And so I had my cute little story, visitor to jail stays a little longer than planned. Great. You know, my journalism career is off and running. Now, the thing is, the bailiff's name on his um, name tag was McNeil or McNear or something like that. And I didn't have his first name, so I had to call around and get his first name. 
And they said, oh, that's O.T. McNear. He's been cop forever, blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, great. I got the name, fact-checked it, fantastic. Then the next day we run it, the story, and it's even in a box. You know, it's got its own little box around it. It's that important. And we get a call that that wasn't O.T. McNear, that he has a son who's a bailiff named Jay McNear. And therefore, I had a fact error in my first big story. Ah. (laughs) That pretty much set the course. That was probably the best story I ever had. And after that, you know, so. You had a knack for for titles, I got to say. That's a a good little, it was a good, uh, it's not a headline. What's the name of the the title of a story? I liked it. A little little longer. I, I like that. Well, I like. I'd rather write headlines, and they're kind of more yes. like jokes and stories. But stay a little longer sounds like a lifetime movie title. It does. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. Country. Yeah, we'll get there. That's like a country song. But anyway, no. The thing is, the copy editing was like you got to stay inside and just read other people's things and tell them what they were doing wrong. And but the thing is, when at uh, J School Journalism School, the newspaper copy editing is fact checking and in addition to typos and grammars. And so when I was in New York applying for copy editing jobs, um, the I was applying at Us Magazine, which doesn't sound like it had much of a copy editing department, but the nonetheless, they gave me a bunch of words that were like Dirigur, I've always remembered, and Alfresco, and some other words that I didn't know how to spell. <laughs> And I'm like, my whole thing is as a copy editor is, and this is pre-internet, you look at the dictionary. Word looks wrong, but I didn't know how to spell them. So what they had done was put me in an editor's office who wasn't there. And this is all pre-cell phone, pre-internet. So I'm in there looking at these, flop sweating, knowing I'm not going to get it. And I realized there's something in the room called a telephone. Uh-huh. And I go, huh, I'll bet if I dial nine, I can get an outside line. Even to this day. To this day. Nine, and sure enough, so I dialed 301. My childhood phone number, and got my mother. And <laughs> ran the words faster. <laughs> I would have done the same thing. Your mother, who has clearly has a gift for copy editing. Well, she's an uh, English teacher and a French teacher, so there knows the words. And she speaks French, so she knew how to spell de rigueur. There's a, there's a hidden U in there. There's two U's in de rigueur. <laughs> that's amazing yeah. so i cheated and i got the job and then the woman who hired me her husband i believe did sound effects or sound i don't know what for uh, and his job moved to la and so by the time i started she had quit and i was the new copy chief oh my god i know it was I amazing a, i had a very similar experience yeah. i have nothing to do with copy editing but i i uh I, I started as a temp at an, an accounting firm and got moved into the IT department because I knew a thing or two about computers. Um, and within a week or two of moving to the IT department, the head of the IT department and the other guy in the IT department left. Yeah. And here I was, the head of the IT department. So, yeah. Yeah. I love how, I love it. Does it does it does that ever happen anymore? It must. I mean, it must. We live in such a stupid world. Somebody's. Yeah. And by the way, I'd like to add that I was now responsible for giving that copy editing test to anybody. Glad the most ethical guy in the room is in charge. Well, listen, sometimes when you become the person in charge, you don't have to do the work. You're managing the people doing the work, and that makes your job. A little bit easier. Absolutely. And the thing was, I did a, I mean, I was fine at copy editing. I always had a dictionary at my elbow and I could look up words that I didn't know, you know. So <laughs> and this was fun. in New York? This was in New York. This was, uh, uh, boy, this was over uh, one Dag Hammershold Plaza across from the UN. Cool New York addresses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, paid you, um, it paid you enough salary that you could live in New York. Yeah. Well, that's it. And this is, and I, and I, I think, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember how low the number was that I could actually live there and afford to live in New York. I think it was something like $23,000 a year or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Scraping the bottom of the New York barrel. Yep, yep, yep. I mean. But working on the Upper East Side is pretty cool with a view of the river. 
It is. And, and the thing is that when I joined the magazine, it was coming out every other week, which I guess is called a bi-weekly. And then they went to a monthly format. Now I think they come out every week. But So I was copy chief on a magazine that came out once a month. This meant I had a lot of free time. Ah. So new in New York, lots of time to walk up and down and around and goof off. And, you know, I should have been pursuing a career. But And then come back and deal with the magazine stuff. So when you say you should have been pursuing a career, was it at that point that, that you felt you wanted to write comedy or how did you fall into that? Like, what was that? Well, that was, well, that was, well, basically I started selling freelance pieces or trying to sell freelance pieces to magazines back when you could. And, um, I had absolutely no luck pitching celebrity profiles or whatever. It just, Hey, there are a lot of people that are better at it. And so I was always into comedy and I started trying to sell humor pieces to uh, like say the New York Post or New York Newsday and this is when Spy Magazine was big and they had pretty much invented the list which is what all journalism is now so these were list pieces 10 ways Larry King is dead yeah mm-hmm. yeah. so that's how I basically started freelancing literally by the way at the top of that list <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so I and the thing is I had an office I had a phone I could you know, make all the calls and, you know, and it's 99% failure rate. And again, I was 22 or something like that. So too stupid to realize that I was bound to fail. So I just, you know, kept going and eventually sold a piece or two. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably added up to like a total of five or $600 over the entire (laughs) career. But you had your cushy copy, chief copy editor job. So you could do this. Those are bonus bucks. Yeah, exactly. So, we were selling, uh, you know, these uh, humor pieces. I had a writing partner there. And the, did he also work? He or she also yeah, worked at Us Magazine? No, he he was over at Time Warner, or I don't even know if it was Warner then, Time Inc. Um, Henry Luce was probably still alive. Uh, look it up, kids. But um, the. Um, Pull up Lycos right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pull out your uh, encyclopedia botanical. Ask Jeeves quickly. <laughs> hey guys, I'm really going to. Uh, but uh, no, he had a magazine job as well, and the editing over there. And so we were selling stuff. And then the the story of TV is, you know, we he saw a story in USA Today that Comedy Central, which at that point had recently combined the Comedy Channel and Ha. <laughs> two rival comedy networks yeah yeah had combined and they were going at that point they were showing mostly reruns of, from other and they said the new guy doug herzog is wants to start lots of new programming original programming and my partner said hey why don't we send some of our stuff over there uh you're gonna need writers and i said fine waste our time that's not how you get jobs <laughs> and we sent over some stuff and like Three weeks later, we heard from his VP, um, Eileen Katz, another wonderful woman, God God love her, and she said that they were going to be starting a news parody show, so they were looking for people that had humor and journalism backgrounds. So basically, we blindly threw in there and ended up with something that became The Daily Show. That is so amazing. And this is this is would be pre uh, pre John Stewart. This would have been Craig Kilborn. Yes, so uh, it was even pre Craig, Craig. I can't even speak. It was pre Craig Kilborn at the time. <laughs> Craig Kilborn. We got it. our brains work like that. I got yeah. it. So yeah, no. So yeah, they, basically, we were. This was I don't know. This is 1996 or something before you were born, Jamie. Um, yeah. After your third motorcycle crash, Jason. Mm-hmm. But, um, Definitely. The, yeah, so we were hired and to create the show. And at this point, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Then they, they hired Kilborn and the show started. We were there. He was there a year and a half and then went on to whatever he went on to. Then John Stewart came on. And then the rest has all been silk and gravy for the last 20 years. I want to I wanna talk about for a second um... – how you quit your chief copy editing job at us when that happened. Like at one point where you like, no, I got to hang on to this. There's benefits. How well, do I say goodbye? I didn't quit. I was, uh, I was fired though, not for cause. Um, basically those jobs are every time a new editor comes in, 
they clean house and they bring in their people. Nice. And I had managed, it was low level enough that I'd managed to survive, I think like three or four regime changes. And wow. then finally the day came and they brought in a woman and um, she basically said she wanted more strong women on the staff. And I said, I can learn, but <laughs> so at that point I'd been there six years. I mean, I, I had milked that cow so dry. Um, and so I picked up a job. A friend of mine got me a job at a magazine called Global Finance. Um, oh my God. Which I can't even talk about. Uh, it's, it's beyond uninteresting. Your podcast is melting down from boredom from the words global and finance. Oh my God. I'm absolutely financed. Uh, absolutely fascinated. I mean, that's a magazine you find laying on a chair when you take an early flight during the week. Right. But. But anyways, there Did that require a separate dictionary. <laughs> I don't I don't know. But it was it was beyond yeah. But the thing is, and, and then at that point, Spy Magazine, as I always say, was during its later unfunny years. It had gone bankrupt and been bought by this um, cut rate outfit, and they were looking for an editor and they hired me. Wow. So now you're the editor of a magazine. And then all of a sudden I'm the editor of a magazine. And, Dude, and it was it was it was it was again, it was my nightmare come true. It was run by this insane, very bad person who lied constantly and undercut mm-hmm. me. And after I managed to get, I think, an issue and a half out, I was very pleased, and he got me fired. <gasps> yeah, and the, the whole time, I mean, I could see it all coming. And yeah, it was just like trying not to quit. So when they fired me, I could get unemployment. Of course, as we've and, all been there. Yeah. So they fired me and I got unemployment. And this is, I don't know, this is like in February. So it's winter. I'm getting a, I'm getting an unemployment check. And I've got the prospect. They've said they're going to hire me at Comedy Central. Wow. So it was the long winter of my not so discontent. You just failed all the way up. I, I still am. I still. I am. just want people to know that it is very uncommon to fail all the way up. But if you can be <laughs> in the position, ride that wave. Ride the wave Absolutely. because that's pretty awesome. And guy is being modest because um, he is super. He's a super talented writer, though. So, I mean, yes. Yes, but <laughs> but when it comes to the writing, the Comedy Central job, I mean, the work is there. You landed. It was opportunity meeting preparation. I mean, you were there. He's going to be like, no, no, no. There was no, no preparation. No. No, Every no. joke I wrote was an accident. It was an accident. <laughs> this guy said this thing to me on the subway, and I wrote it down and said, oh, I did, wasn't prepared here. I was and trying they to write loved straight it. news, and <laughs> they uh, thought it was... funny people made it funny. <sighs> No, but the Daily Show was just fantastic. I mean, it was just like it was everything I could have hoped for. I mean, let's say Spy Magazine was the nightmare, and the Daily Show was the dream. It was like everything I had been punished for as a child, you know, being a smart ass, etc. <laughs> uh, speaking ill of my betters, I was paid to do. Yeah, it's awesome. Professional irreverence. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And then you went. So you did Conan mm-hmm. after the Daily Show. Yes. How did that happen? What was that um, transition? Well, basically, because the Daily Show wasn't union at that point, wasn't Writers Guild, mm-hmm. the Conan gig was WGA, meaning better health benefits, retirement benefits, all that kind of stuff. And the way the Conan thing worked was that, let's see, I knew someone who knew This is someone. still when Conan was in New York, right? Yes, absolutely. This okay. is 2000. This is pre-9-11, the old New York. You'd go to the World Trade Towers every day for lunch. No. Um, <laughs> lovely revolving restaurant. <laughs> uh, Not funny. Too soon. Too no, soon. funny. funny. Uh, by the way, you know, I was at the, uh, I, this is one of my, my only really showbiz moments I'm proud of. I was at the actual roast where Gilbert Gottfried told the joke, oh, the, the 9-11 <laughs> joke that led to the aristocrats. What a wonderful moment. The mother is saying to the father. <laughs> what did you do? I laughed. It was okay. it, it was incredible. It was the whole I heard it was horrible. no one had ever like told that joke out loud to our, to an audience before, right? Yeah, it was all comedians telling it to each other. <laughs> but uh so 
They, uh, but anyway, I just went down a side path there. Where the hell were we? Daily Show? I'm yeah, I hate side paths. They're the worst. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So Nothing you went to, to Conan um, <laughs> around 2000. He was in New York uh, because yeah. Writers Guild. Yeah, and the, and it worked out. It worked out beautifully. It was a great place to work. You know, but was it hard to leave the Daily Show? I mean, what was that like? It was fine. I mean, the thing was, it was, it was, it was. I got to be in the startup of it. I got to yeah. help invent it. I mean, a lot of the voice of the Daily Show, all those puns and the headline shit, that's all stuff I stole from Spy Magazine. My partner and I really pushed that voice that's still there. Um, I'd kind of done everything that I thought I could do there. And it was just kind of like, all right, well, let's let's go to let, the days when it mattered. Let's go network, you know? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it sounds like you left if I've got the, the timing right, I mean, it took a while for the Daily Show to really build its mm -hmm. its. Uh, it got good after I left, is what you're trying to say. Is what I'm going to get around <laughs> to saying. Thank you for saving me a lot of time and discomfort. Well, let me go find my Emmy. I'll be right back. Go on. <laughs> it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> More jobs will come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go. No, I, I was just going to say, like, you know, you, when the opportunity comes to move up and, and find. Yeah, you can't. I mean, they they always they always said at my uh, corporate side hustle, they um, managers were leaving constantly and going to like competitive companies, big name companies of the same um, field of work so that they could come back with a higher title. So I, I sort of often feel that that's the same way in in. This this field also is like if you never leave, they're always going to consider you at this level. Yeah. You're still waiting for your Lauren Michaels moment at the Daily Show. That's pretty much it. He's I'm waiting for him to come and say you. you I can't, let's see, Lauren Michaels is let's see, it's Dana Carvey doing Doctor Let's see, I'm sorry, what's his name? Mike Myers is imitating huh. Dana Carvey, imitating Lauren Michaels is Doctor. Mm -hmm. So I'm waiting for him to come to me and say you. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, at Us Magazine, I was a copy editor, copy chief there for six years. I could never get out as a writer. I had to leave. To yeah. Right. Somewhere else. So, yeah, yeah. leaving is definitely part of the plan, always, or should be yeah. part of the plan. So, you, you get into the WGA, the Writers Guild. Mm -hmm. um, are you still your partner at Conan? Um, no, he stayed at the Daily Show. I went off. Oh, to move on. <laughs> oh, all in, all relationships. That's the thing. I, it's funny. I've had probably a dozen writing partners since then. Believe it or not, it's just I've you know since learned that you basically you you view partners as project to project. Okay. Yeah. And so I would like to get his side of it, but yeah, we're waiting for our next project. <laughs> Oh, huh? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, currently I'm like I'm writing a Swedish horror movie with a German director, and I've got a Lifetime movie with another friend. It's just the you are the constant. You know, the partner is is not. Yeah, yeah you know, we get it. Yeah. We know we're all moons in your orbit. That's, that's how I look at it. You're all flies around my eyes. When when Bieber's working with one of his other writing partners, I'm always like. No, I need this time. You're going to have to stop working now so that I can work. And then I'm going to work with somebody that's not you. Wow. It's a very jealous, heated wow. sort of. Oh. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not, I'm not kidding at all. <laughs> it's sad. Um, okay, let's talk about Conan. So, mm -hmm. Conan's in New York. You're working at Conan. Do you have a partner? Uh, no, no. Um, I was always, I was in the monologue department. The writers invited to the guys who wrote sketch all the time. And then there were three, two, four of us who wrote monologue. That's awesome. Oh, it was fun. I, I got to, I wrote jokes for a living. I mean, it, it turned me basically into a joke machine. I can like look at a newspaper and come up with three variations on a bad joke on every story. But it was nice. I worked, uh, the thing is the other guys in the department and I trusted each other. So we did kind of work as partners. We'd like work separately, then we'd come together, mix our stuff up, bounce it off and then send it up to Conan. So it was very collegial. It was, you know, and I worked with a guy named Brian Kiley, who's a stand-up now. Yeah, you know, fantastic stand-up. He's been a stand-up, you know, forever, still is. And he's one of the best pure joke writers I've ever worked with. And so I got And to he stuck with Conan for a long time. He was oh, writing yeah. for, he might still be writing for him here. He still is, he is. I'm yeah. actually, I think I'm going for a walk with him Saturday. We're going to go to the Iliad bookstore and then walk on Chandler. 
but uh, wear your masks. Yeah, exactly. But um, the um, yeah, he's still there. So I got to work with him. I learned so much, basically, about how to hone a joke, how to just get it down to the absolute, you know, strip it down to the parts. And then on top of that, he's a genius. He can just think, you know, just just sit there and go, oh shit, he just thought of something better than anything would have come up with for the day. I shouldn't be jealous, but it means I get to take a break. <laughs> That's funny. So how long were you with Conan? I was there nine and a half years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's incredible. It's That's amazing. actually, and then Conan went West Coast. West Coast, exactly. We moved out here in the, the, the whole Tonight Show fiasco. As, as I like to say, I crossed the country on the Titanic. And, oh. you know, I waited to crash till you got to port. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Anyway, so you know, after God knows at that point, thirteen years of pretty solid employment, I'm unemployed, and I, I'm everything I always was afraid of becoming—an unemployed writer in LA with a mortgage. So, yeah. <laughs> Dreams do really do come true out here. Yeah. The shadow, as Jung would say, the shadow confronts us. Oh, by the way, actually, the, the, the one good joke I wrote today was that if, if the groundhog sees its shadow, it means six more weeks of Jungian analysis. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not oh. a feat. My stuff isn't fancy. Anyway. Um, <laughs> my other feat joke that I love is uh, it's, Chekhov, it's Anton Chekhov's birthday. Whatever you do, don't give him a gun in the first act. We're losing your audience left and right with this. No, one. no, they love this. No, no, no. That's why we edit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But anyway, so we're in LA, and then the whole Tonight Show thing happens, and then he moves to TBS, I guess. And, oh, yeah. And then it's a massive bus budget cuts. And so I'm basically yeah. fired, or whatever you want to call it, laid off, whatever you want to put it sweeter. I'm in LA, and it's like I'm a. I'm time to reinvent and find a new job and find new and not just a job but find jobs and so you went done. down to the motorcycle dealership on santa monica because they said sales needed no experience like nobody's got experience no so i mean basically i started shaking the trees everyone i knew and and then at, at that point too the side hustle became the you know i got my mfa and because i had been i had been teaching um, comedy writing. A friend of mine at NYU had hired me to teach one course a semester. And despite my goal of never being a teacher, uh, you know, more failure, keep failing up. Failing up. <laughs> I, I also think that you, when you get to a certain age, to a certain point in your career, teaching isn't the thing that you thought it was when yeah. you were younger. Now you have something to offer and it feels good. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. my, my take on it. Yeah. That's the thing I felt like I, I do. I do. I don't feel as big as imposter as I might. Yeah. And then the thing is I've learned is that if all I was doing was teaching, I might, I think I'd be unhappy, but the yeah. fact that I'm still writing and the teaching actually feeds into the writing. Of course. Because when I look at all my students' mistakes or what they do wrong, I was about to say what they do right, but it came out what they do wrong. But <laughs> when I look at my own stuff and I realize, Oh, everything I've been bitching at them about, I see on my page. So yeah. But you can't see it when you're just, you know, you need that, that perspective. Other, yeah. 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 Exactly. The mirror. And you've taught at a, you've taught at a bunch of um, schools. Uh, you were out here, you taught at Loyola Marymount, yep. uh, Columbia, NYU's Tisch. Um, and then, you know, recently you were at Montclair State. Mm -hmm. So you've really made a hustle out of going around teaching. I have, I have. I've gotten very fortunate. I'm still at Montclair. I'm actually teaching full time there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I went from adjunct to full-time, which I never thought would happen. Congratulations. Um, and how does that work with writing? I oh, mean, benefits, what? Yeah, what, what? what? It works really well because he has benefits. He's like, <laughs> now I can really flow with my writing because there's no pressure. Now there's no pressure. It's like being at Us Magazine all over again. All over again. That's the same. Yeah, it's Full your question was, well, what does that? How does that affect the writing, or what was your question? How does it work? You know, how does it work being full time and versus... also a full time writer? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, I don't know. You do. It just yeah. does. You're still doing it. Yeah, you still do it. I mean, the who doesn't have a five year old? Yeah, that's that's it. And uh, you know, your your five year old is sleeping, so he doesn't mm -hmm. have to hear my jokes. So. Skin of our teeth. 
Yeah. <laughs> Putting brandy in the milk is what I hear. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's COVID, whatever works. Yeah. The thing is, it's a, it's like any it's like anything. You know, you you do you do what you have to for the school, and it's a hole that never gets filled. And then, as far as the writing, you know that whenever you're not writing, you feel guilty about it. Yeah. yeah. Here's the great thing about being an artist. Um, is that you're used to or always preparing for side hustles, like teaching, you got your MFA, you figured out how to get, you know, you were teaching before you figured out how to keep that as an ongoing side hustle, which is awesome. Um, MFA, if you can, you know, get the loans. Um, and then, which you can, you can, uh, you just have to pay them back. Um, anyone, you can pay the loans. You have until you die. Um, I think. And then also, I know you have a lot of projects uh, that you're working on, but I just want to talk about some of your feature films right now. Give Me My Baby, which (laughs) aired on Lifetime in May 2017. Uh, Then on Lifetime, Killer in Law in 2019. And the latest and greatest, Cheer Squad Secrets and A Sinister Secret, I guess alternating titles, 2020. So they all this have is all what I've heard about. Giving my baby is also the stranger inside. Which is oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> the stranger, give me my baby. The stranger inside. Yeah, That's know. creepy on a lot of levels, man. I know. And then killer in law was also killer grandma, um, depending on uh, where they released it. But oh my god! Yeah. So <laughs> my favorite though was on the on the first one, uh, the give me my baby. The the tagline on the poster was better than anything I wrote in the entire movie. Whoever wrote this should get the Oscar. It said, be careful who you let inside. Mm. <laughs> yep. What <laughs> genius. That is That's vamp- awesome. That is vampiric. I had water in my mouth. I had to swallow. That is awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> be careful who you let inside. Oh Yeah, and actually, somewhere I've got the Spanish poster for it, and they have the Spanish translation for that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's called. Yeah, no, the, the say, title, say it as a duck. <laughs> that's the friend. No, the <laughs> title I kept pitching, pitching for that one was "Fetal Attraction." Oh uh, God, you are a comedy writer. This is serious stuff. This is psychological thrillers. They're, they're irony-free. Those movies. I will say that about them. <laughs> yes. Here's what. Here's what we say about Guy. He has written for all of these amazing shows um he's won an emmy he's won a writer's guild award was that for conan the wga award um you've written these uh psychological thrillers and yet i don't see a damn poster for any of this on your wall what's i don't even see the emmy i'm here for the emmy there's a a marx brothers poster your office is not up to snuff there's the there's the emmy oh my god so cool. What's really cool is it works as a hat rack. Very nicely. I think you still have the price tag on the bottom. I think I do. What just happened to the Emmy? I killed the Emmy. Oh, I hang my wedding ring on the ring on the the wedding. Jesus. (laughs) Don't worry, guys. It went down the heater grate. He hangs his wedding ring on the wing. Uh, Oh, wait, wait. I've got your next movie on the wings of my Emmy. I like it. <laughs> so what are you currently working on for projects? I'm working on a horror movie, a, a Swedish horror movie with a German director who lives in Sweden. You are so awesome. Guy is so awesome. This was such a good episode. Really I'm is. like really excited. I think you've got uh, one last question. I do. I do. I have one last question. I like to ask everybody this. Please answer correctly. God damn it. Was it worth it? Well, I'm going to play professor. Was what worth what? No. Uh, That's that's playing copy editor. Was leaving the dealership, because you could have been a professional salesman. (laughs) To answer your question, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. I fucked up a lot of things. I would do, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, as I was saying, I'm not good at anything else. No one wanted to pay me to do anything else. And I got keep being a copy editor. I know. I mean, be a copy editor. As as, uh, Jason mentioned, I got to write jokes for Mike Tyson. That's got to be worth it. (laughs) Totally. I once once fixed a computer for Luke Ferrigno, and that scared the hell out of me. (laughs) 
This was really great. You've been awesome. And we just honestly want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been a delight. And if there's any, you know, if anything you missed, send me an email, I'll ignore you. She wants my money, but I got no money. This ain't no savings and loans.